0: Please turn in your Bibles to Job chapter 42. Job chapter 42, we'll begin reading in the first verse of that chapter and go through verse 6. Job 42, verses 1 through 6. Remember, as I read and as you follow along, this is the Word of God. Job 42. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Amen. Let's pray once more. Father, thank you for your word. We do ask, we plead with you this morning that you might send your spirit, as you have promised to do, We pray that in the reading and the preaching of your word, you might see fit to change us, to draw men and women to yourself and to ultimately glorify Jesus Christ. Your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. So illumine us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the great truths that we see in the scriptures, really from the very earliest pages of the Bible, is that God teaches his people. He guides his people. He is called our Father. He is called a Shepherd. But the Bible also says that God instructs us. He instructs us through his word. He instructs us as he guides us through life. And one of the features of God's instruction, in fact, one of the primary ways in which God instructs us, according to the scriptures, is he instructs us through suffering. Now, this uh, is maybe a truth that in some ways is an unwelcome truth. Uh, we all Instinctively try to avoid suffering in our lives. I think that's a natural thing. I don't think that's an entirely bad thing. But if you look at the Bible from the very earliest pages all the way up until the end, what you see again and again is the great value of suffering in terms of our instruction and also in terms of our witness. I want to just review for you a little bit of the Bible's teaching because I think it sets the stage. For the passage we're going to look at in a little more detail. First of all, the Bible tells us that suffering is to be expected, both because we live in a fallen world and therefore things are not as they should be, and also, particularly as Christians, because of the fact that we are in some measure in opposition to the world. The world is in opposition to us. So, for instance, in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, it speaks of the the regular course of life, the, 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 the facts of life living in a fallen world. It says there's a time to weep, a time to laugh, and there's a time to mourn, and a time to dance. And this is, this is the regular stuff of life, living in a fallen world. We are going to suffer. We are going to mourn. We are going to have occasions of sadness. And then we could move on from that to what the Bible says, particularly to those who are believers... Peter puts it this way, Do not be surprised, beloved, at the fiery trial when it comes upon you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. And the Apostle Paul goes perhaps even further when he says this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There's suffering. There's suffering because we live in the world that we live in, and there's suffering in particular to be expected for those who follow Jesus Christ. But there are features of this that the Lord uses in a powerful way, not just in our life, but in the lives of others. Again, Peter says this about our suffering. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, our suffering that we endure as Christians, which is to be expected, is something that shows both to us and to the world the reality of our faith. The way he puts it is, the tested genuineness of your faith. One of the reasons for this, of course, is because the Bible also teaches us that for those who are united to Jesus Christ, suffering is a way of displaying God's power within us. It's perhaps paradoxical in our minds, but The Apostle Paul, you'll remember, had this thorn, messenger of Satan, that he begged the Lord to remove from him, and the Lord's response is, my grace is sufficient for you because my power is made perfect in weakness, and then you know what the Apostle goes on to say, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. We know that God is with us in our suffering. This is something that the scriptures speak to throughout the Old and the New Testaments. Isaiah 43, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Or the psalmist who writes, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. And ultimately, this leads to the conclusion that we see over and over in Scripture that God uses our suffering to teach us and to cause us to grow. You know, of course, what James writes. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And this is part of the reason why the Apostle Paul talks about rejoicing in the midst of his suffering. Not because it was something that he enjoyed not because it was something that he sought out, but because he knew that suffering was one of the primary ways in which God instructs his people. It's interesting how many people throughout history have testified to this reality in their own lives. I was reading a number of years ago a biography of a uh, 20th century, I suppose, media figure, a kind of public intellectual Malcolm Mugridge, and he was reflecting on his 75th birthday. And he said this, Contrary to what might be expected, I look back on experiences that at the time seemed especially desolating and painful with particular satisfaction. And then he goes on to say this. I think this might be slightly hyperbolic, but nonetheless there's there's some wisdom in it. He says, I can say with complete truthfulness... That everything I have learned in my 75 years in the world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my existence has been through affliction and not through happiness, whether pursued or attained. Now all of that biblical teaching about the way in which God uses suffering in our lives, the way in which God displays His power in us in the midst of suffering, the way in which suffering proves our faith, gives gives testimony to the genuineness of our faith. All of that <clears throat> lies in the background of what we see in the book of Job because there is no more extended treatment in the Bible on suffering, no more extended treatment on someone who suffers and all the, the thoughts and, and arguments that, that come up as a result of that suffering than what we see in this early book of Job, probably written about events that happened perhaps during the time of the patriarchs, this very early book. And Job, of course, you know, has a, an unusual situation in his life. The book begins by describing him as a God-fearing man. And in fact, the Lord himself describes him as a God-fearing man to Satan. Have you considered my servant Job? He, he fears me. And what happens, of course, is that Satan, when the Lord makes that declaration, challenges Job's fear of the Lord. He challenges Job's loyalty to God. He says... Essentially, well, of course he fears you. He fears you because you protect him. He fears you because you've blessed him abundantly. And and Job was blessed abundantly by the Lord. And so the Lord then allows Satan, and we read this in the first chapters of the book, the Lord then allows Satan to remove from Job many of those blessings. And so almost all at once, Job's children are killed. And his, his, his land, his, his property is taken from him. His livestock, his wealth, all gone. And the Lord notes in, that Job still praises him. Job still fears him, even after all that. And so then Satan protests and suggests that perhaps the only reason Job still fears God even after all that is because the Lord has not allowed him to afflict Job's health, to afflict his body. So the Lord then allows that. And what we see at the end of that initial section of Job is that Job is afflicted. He has boils all over his skin. He's suffering. And all those other things have been taken away. And he has no idea. And then, of course, Job's friends arrive, and Job's friends remain with him for some time in silence, but then they begin to engage in a dialogue with Job. They begin to suggest what it is that is going on. And it's clear throughout the book, as Job makes speeches, and then one of his friends makes speeches, and then Job gives a response, and then another friend gives a response to that response. It is clear throughout the book of Job that, that Job has the better argument than his friends. Although Job doesn't know exactly what is going on, he maintains that his friends are wrong in their suppositions about his life and the conclusions. that His friends are giving him what might seem on the surface sometimes to be a very good counsel and yet actually is off the mark. But more than that, more than opposing his friends, Job also makes some extraordinary statements in the midst of his suffering. And you probably, if you've read through the book of Job, have noted some of the statements that Job makes. He he, he says this in Job 19, just a wonderful confession of faith. He says, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives And that at the last he will take his stand on the earth. Job believes in the bodily resurrection. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. He still has confidence in God. He's still looking to the future. He's still looking to hope in the resurrection. There are some other theological statements Job makes in the midst of these great statements of faith. Job, from time to time, expresses his his earnest desire to have his day in court with God. Perhaps you've expressed something like this, or if you haven't expressed it, perhaps you've thought it. Or you've heard someone else express it. Something like, "When when I see God, I have a few questions for Him. Well Job actually says something somewhat like that on a number of occasions, but in Job twenty-three, for instance, he puts it this way Oh that I might knew Oh that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. He's talking about the Lord. I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would learn the words that he would answer. And perceive what he would say to me. Uh, Would he contend with me by the greatness of his power? No. Surely he would pay attention to me. There the upright would reason with him. And I would be delivered forever from my judge. Well, as the book progresses, Job makes more and more statements like that. He wants his day at court with God. He wants God to answer a few of his questions. And actually, near the end of the book, beginning in Job chapter 40, the Lord does graciously appear before Job. And the Lord appears before Job, but it but it goes very differently than the way that Job envisioned it going. Job envisioned a situation where he would ask God questions, and God would have to answer his questions. But what happens instead is the Lord appears to Job and says to Job, Now gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you, and you instruct me. And the way that goes is the Lord asks Job a series of questions. Questions about creation. Uh, Questions about the way in which the natural world operates. And Job, Job has, has no answers. And you see what the Lord is doing is the Lord is exposing Job's ignorance about even the basic things of life, even the basic things of creation. I've often thought about my my children when they were younger. Like most kids, they would ask all kinds of questions and expect that I would have answers to them. Some I did have answers to, some I didn't have answers to. But, but I can imagine, and perhaps you can imagine as well, a child, maybe a, maybe a six or seven-year-old child coming and saying, for instance, if one of my daughters had said this to me, Dad, I, I demand right now that you teach me calculus. Well, how might I have handled that? Well, I might have said to them something like this. Well, do you know your multiplication tables? Well, no. Uh, Do you understand how to do long division? No, I've never heard of it. Uh, Do you know how to work out algebraic equations? No, I don't even know what those are. I can't even pronounce that. And you see what I'd be doing in giving those questions is illustrating the fact that the demand that I teach calculus right now is is somewhat inappropriate. It's not that there's no such thing. It's not that there are no answers in that regard. It's It's that the one asking has no background or preparation to be able to even... Ask such a question or make such a demand. And that's really what happens when the Lord addresses Job. He asks Job all these questions that are, in a sense, about the ABCs of creation. The kind of multiplication tables. And Job is exposed in his ignorance. So that brings us to Job 42. Because Job gives a very brief speech... And in that speech, we really see Job make two declarations and then a response. And those two declarations come right on the heels of his exposure, not really knowing even the basics of creation. And therefore, he's shown the inappropriateness of his Demand of God, oh, that I might know where to find him. He would surely answer me. Now, as I said, Job makes two declarations here. And these two declarations I would suggest to you, I would submit to you are in a sense two of the most basic lessons that we should learn today when it comes to suffering. Two of the fundamental, basic, biblical responses when we're faced with suffering even in our own lives or in the lives of others. This is not a comprehensive list. There's more to be said. And we saw the Bible has a great deal to say about suffering. But, but these, are, these are perhaps lesson one and lesson two when it comes to suffering. Job Begins with this, lesson one. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Job, even when confronted with his own suffering and with his own lack of explanation for what he had endured, declares first The absolute sovereignty of God in all things. Now it's interesting because many modern people, and for for that matter many ancient people, declare just the opposite when it comes to suffering. Because they are centered on themselves, because they think that they are the measure of all things, and that they deserve and should have answers for all the circumstances in their life, will say something like, well... The fact that I'm suffering must mean that things have spun entirely out of God's control. Or perhaps there are warring factions. And God wins some and loses some. But that's not what Job declares here. What Job declares is actually the the greatness of God. the, the, The total control of God. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You know, it's interesting if you take that sentiment, that, that kind of expression that Job gives here, that declaration in verse 1, what you find is that declaration is everywhere in your Bible. That in all the major moments where God's people are declaring who God is. They, they use similar language. They declare the absolute sovereignty of God. You look, for instance, of the at the people of Israel when they're brought through the Red Sea and redeemed by God in that great song of Moses. What do they declare? They declare that... God is absolutely sovereign. That He is greater than all the armies of the earth. That nothing He does can be stopped. Or if you look at you look at Solomon when when he builds this great temple for the Lord, what, what does he immediately say? Even as the the grandeur of the temple stands before all the people, he says, "Lord, heaven and highest heaven cannot contain you. How much." How much less this, this place that I've built? Because you, you are absolutely sovereign. One of my favorite instances of this kind of declaration is found in Daniel chapter 4. You remember the context of Daniel 4, perhaps? Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, this great king, the greatest king of the ancient world at that time, uh, has a dream that is troubling to him. He, he brings it before Daniel. Daniel offers him an explanation. He says to the king, King, this is what your dream means. What your dream means is that because of your pride, God's going to judge you. And the way he's going to judge you is you're going to eat grass like the cattle, be exiled from the city, eating grass like the cattle for seven years. And Nebuchadnezzar perhaps forgot about that conversation And maybe about six months later, we don't know exactly, he's walking around the walls of Babylon. And you remember what he says, is this not Babylon the great which I with my hands have built? And and as the words leave his mouth, he's struck down by the Lord. And he eats grass with the cattle for seven years. And then at the end of Daniel 4, it moves from a third-person account of Nebuchadnezzar to a first-person account where Nebuchadnezzar himself is speaking. And what it says, what Nebuchadnezzar says is this. He declares something very much like what Job declares, very much like what Solomon declares, very much like what Moses declares, very much like what all the people of God declare at these key turning points. He says his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? And then, according to Nebuchadnezzar, at that time my reason returned to me. that's, That's the declaration that Job is making here in the midst of suffering do not forget the absolute sovereignty of god some people believe that the world is run by competing gods or competing spiritual beings that need to be appeased or war with each other but the bible declares the one true god who does all things and who is good and who works things out for the good of his people and whose ways are not our ways and, his pa- and whose paths are beyond our tracing out. A declaration about God's sovereignty. Now there's a second declaration. And in order to see this in verses 3 and 4, you need to pay attention to the punctuation in your English text. If you look at the beginning of verse 3, you will see that the beginning of verse 3 has quotation marks around it. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? And you'll notice as well that verse 4 similarly has quotation marks around it. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Now, why is that? Well, it's because what Job is doing in verse 3, at the beginning of verse 3, and in verse 4, in the entirety of verse 4, is Job is quoting from something that the Lord has just said. In other words, Job is quoting in verse 3 from the Lord. And what did the Lord say? Here, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? And and what Job is doing in quoting that back here is he's saying, yeah, that was me. I'm the one that hides counsel without knowledge. Similarly, in verse 4, the Lord's words. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. Now, those are the Lord's words to Job. And what Job is saying in verse 4, by quoting that back, is he's saying, yes, that's, that's the way it needs to work. I need to listen, you speak, you ask the questions, and I, and I listen and learn. So what Job is doing at the beginning of verse 3 and in verse 4 is he is, in a sense, underscoring or co-signing what the Lord had said about him. And what's the the essence of that? What's Job's takeaway? Well, Job's takeaway actually comes in the second half of verse 3. And you'll notice that these are Job's words. There are not quotation marks around them because this is Job making a declaration. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. What Job does here is he makes not only a statement about God's absolute sovereignty, but he makes a statement about the limitations of human understanding. God is, according to Job, beyond my full comprehension. And when I sought to give explanations or to demand explanations... I was I was talking about something that I I didn't understand. It was a thing too wonderful for me that I did not know. You know if you read certain authors long enough, you start to get a sense of uh, ideas and 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 perhaps other books that they come back to over and over again. And one of the things that you realize if you read uh, John Calvin long enough is that there are, there are certain verses that he, he he refers to over and over and over again in his writings, in his commentaries, in the Institutes, and in other works. And one of those verses, I don't know if this is the verse that Calvin quotes the most of any verse, but, but it, it may be. It's probably, if not the top, one of the most frequently quoted verses, is Deuteronomy 29.29. And if you're not familiar with that verse, it's worth familiarizing yourself with it. Deuteronomy 29.29 says this, The hidden things are of the Lord, but the things revealed are for us and for our children forever that you may observe all the words of this law. But that, that phrase... The hidden things are of the Lord. Now that's not saying that God hasn't revealed everything we need for life and godliness. In fact, the Bible says that. And Deuteronomy 29.29 says that. Because it says the things revealed are for us and for our children forever. There are things that are revealed to us in the word of God. In the law of God, as it says in Deuteronomy 29. But there are hidden things... And those hidden things are of the Lord. The Apostle Paul puts it this way. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully just as I am fully known. And that's what Job's declaring here. If lesson one in the school of suffering is the absolute sovereignty of God, lesson two is the limitations of human understanding. There are things we don't know. There are things we're not told in scripture. And many of those things, uh, perhaps a majority of those things, have to do with personal circumstances that you or I may encounter. Oh, we're given all the guidance we need. We're given all the instruction we need. We're given the framework we need. It's not that God has left us without a witness. He's left us with great clarity as to how we're supposed to live and how we're supposed to face those circumstances. That is not unclear. That is, that is crystal clear in the scriptures. But the answer to the question of why? Why this now? It is not a question that the Bible gives us a specific answer to in most cases. It was perhaps about 10 years ago now that I had two friends in sort of different groups. They didn't know each other, and they both called, my wife and I, same week, and they both had sons about the same age, and they both had similar news to share. They both said, in one case, one of the families said, um, pray for us, pray for our son. He is, uh, his name was Josiah. Pray for Josiah. He, he's been diagnosed with this brain tumor. And it's out of the blue and it, and it looks aggressive. And then he was young. And and, and you know, it was shocking. And, and, and the same week, another, another friend called, son the same age. And he said, please pray. There is this, our son went in for what we thought was a routine physical, but they discovered something in his leg. It's not a normal kind of cancerous growth. It appears to be something that is really aggressive, really rare. I cannot remember the name of it offhand. But, but it, it, you know, the doctors are telling us this could be, just weeks before it spreads through his whole body. Again, shocking. Well, well, we prayed, of course, and we, we were shocked with them. And I remember it was about two weeks later that we got updates. And one of them, the one actually with the, what appeared to be the more serious and aggressive growth in his leg or condition in his leg, they called us and said, you know, the doctors, <laughs> they were wrong. And, and they can't figure it out, and they don't really have a good explanation, and they're sort of ashamed of themselves. But, but, it, but it's something very benign. No, 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 no concern, no problem. And the other update was was the exact opposite. Oh, it's even more aggressive than we thought. And it wasn't months later before this child had died. And you say to yourself, why him and not him? Why is this situation ending in rejoicing And this situation ending in sorrow. And and when you begin to ask that question, we can make general statements, of course. And the Bible gives us clarity as to how we're supposed to navigate those things. But but in terms of the why, we, we do not know the answer. We're not given the answer. I've uttered what I did not understand, Job says things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Even though Job knows more than his friends and even though the Lord says that Job in all of this did not sin, Job declares here the limitations of his own human understanding. Do you think you know the mind of the Lord? Have you been tempted to Chafe against the reality that there are hidden things that are of the Lord? Do you counsel others in that way, like Job's friends, as if they understood what God was doing here and they could point directly to what Job had done? No, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now, if those are the two declarations that Job makes, God's sovereignty, the limitations of human understanding, what is his response? Well, we see it in verses 5 and 6. Job says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust. Ashes. What does Job exemplify here? Well, Job exemplifies humility, wisdom, repentance. And again, it's worth noting, the Lord says Job hadn't sinned. And yet Job said, my perspective towards suffering, my perspective toward my own life, and my perspective towards God, and, and what God owed me, and what I could know and couldn't know, That has radically changed. He's repentant. And you know, this is the kind of repentance that I believe should characterize all of our lives. Job is an example to us here. Yes, of course, the Bible commands us. We must take it very seriously. We're to repent of our sins. And even earlier, not too long ago, we we confessed our, our sinfulness before God and received His assurance of pardon in the midst of our repentance but but there are perhaps other ways in which well while, while not sinning we 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 have we we have wrong views we have ignorant views we have we have we have things that we we think were, were owed by god we have we have we have misshapen understandings of ourselves with respect to god i think this is why the often quoted first of Martin Luther's 95 Theses is so perpetually relevant. He, he was speaking in a different context, of course, but but he says something that I think we, is true biblically. When our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, commanded us to repent, he, he meant that the whole of the Christian life was to be one of repentance. As our minds are constantly shaped and conformed, to the pattern of God's Word and transformed through the ministry of His Holy Spirit. We are not to be hearers only, but doers of the Word of God. And, and you notice the, the wonderful thing that Job describes here. I had heard of you. I had been a hearer, but now my eye sees you. What, does this, what do the Scriptures tell us? Blessed are the pure in heart. They will see God. And as Job has taken in what he hears, and he's, and he's turned and given himself over to it, his mind has been transformed by it now. Now he says, I've moved from being a hearer to actually seeing you. And you know, it's interesting. If we read through the remainder of the chapter, we see that Job is never told why he suffers. In fact, you and I, having read the first two chapters of the book and that whole interplay between the Lord and Satan, know more about Job's suffering than Job knows about Job's suffering. And even we can't answer all the questions. But Job Job is not told why he suffers. But nonetheless, Job is transformed by his understanding of the sovereignty of God and of his own human inability. God actually in this book offered up his righteous, God fearing servant Job. Satan didn't bring Job up, God did. Job loses everything and has everyone around him misunderstand why it is happening. And, and if you if you Pull the thread of that beyond even the confines of the book of Job through the rest of the scriptures. What you see is that Job not only reveals to us some of the deep mysteries of human experience related to suffering, but we see that not only is suffering a mysterious part of our existence as humans and a necessary part of our growth and grace but the suffering of the righteous one on our behalf is also the mysterious way in which God deals with our sin and reconciles us to himself god offered up jesus the scriptures tell us not just job and, and, and the, the good news that we hear and we declare and we come together to celebrate is that because a righteous man suffered, the righteous God-man suffered, unrighteous people like us can experience mercy and grace and be conformed to the image of His dear Son. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And you know it is, when he reflects on all of these things, when he reflects on Suffering in his life, and when he reflects on God's purposes in the suffering of Jesus and how that brings us newness of life and redemption and reconciliation with God. It's at that moment when Paul has reflected on both of these things, and in fact, reflected on how God has used all of these things and woven them together in a tapestry of history, that Paul actually quotes. From, from Job 35 and 36, he's grappling under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for how to, how to encapsulate these truths of our suffering and, and, and the suffering of Jesus Christ on our behalf as our Redeemer. And here's what Paul says, drawing from this book. Oh, the depth of the riches... Of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Verse 1. How unsearchable are his judgments. And inscrutable his ways. Verses 3 and 4. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that it might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful to you for your word. While we confess there are many things we do not understand... We would be in the dark if you had not revealed yourself to us in and through your word. And so, Father, take these basic truths, your sovereignty, our limitations, and apply them to us by your Holy Spirit. Strengthen us by your Spirit while we suffer. May you take our suffering. And use it to train us, and may all of it redound to the glory of Jesus Christ, our suffering Savior, who is risen again and ascended into heaven and reigning forever. And we ask these things in his name, for he intercedes for us even now. Amen. Let's stand.